Hello and welcome back to the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast, your source for news and trends in the molecular biosciences. This is episode number 41 for the week of March 30th, 2014. All your chromosomes are now belong to us. <laughs> That's a great nerd reference if you're into those sort of things. On this week's show, we're going to talk about synthetic yeast chromosomes and why you should care. But we've got with us a couple sweet, normal group today. It would not be an intro if I did not put words out of order in some weird, retarded Yoda-like fashion. Um, who do we have? Carolina Balkenbush. She's our registered dietitian out of Las Vegas, Nevada. Hello. Hello. I do not have Christian Copley say them. I'm so used to throwing that out there. We have Dr. Dell Jackson, PhD, biomedical engineering. Welcome, Dell. What's cracking? What's cracking, chillacking? That's, I'm a... <laughs> See, I'm a, I'm a wow, hip, I'm hipping with it. I, I'm trying to get to a younger dig. Uh, you're outside your comfort zone, there, I Scotty. Am. I'm like, yo, what's up, dog? We be like <laughs> watching stuff and talking and stuff, you know. It's 7 a.m. on a Sunday. We're recording. I have mainlined probably about six cups of coffee. I'm about halfway to the LD50 for caffeine. So if I'm a little jumpy today, you know why. How has everyone been? I called off the show. I did like the wave off, you know, like when an aircraft's coming in for landing on an aircraft carrier and then they wave them off because something's unsafe. That's what I did to the show last week because I had a very, very, very long week and I um, I just didn't have time to prepare. So I'm sorry, loyal listeners. It was all me. But I'm sure some really exciting stuff has happened in your guys' life and you always, at this point in the show, you always give me that, oh my gosh, he's asking me how my week went. I haven't yeah. thought of it, <laughs> despite the fact we've done this 40 times in the past. So feed me some love, people. What did you guys do? Well. <laughs> it's crickets, okay. Please tell. 12 weeks ago, I was like, Scott's going to ask me what's going on. And he's going to want to know what's happened. So 12 weeks ago, I started a project that now I can announce to you. Ooh. And that is that my wife is pregnant. Hey! So that's oh, big news. Yay! I didn't really do much. So but uh, the little, the little, uh, the very little bit. Life is busy growing away. So yeah, we saw the uh, images on Wednesday and. It's quite amazing what they can show you, and it and it must be amazing because the person who does the the ultrasound, the, the sonogram the, tech, uh-huh. yeah, who does it every day, unless they're just a really good actress, like they're even amazed at it. Like there's just something about seeing life at that level. This collection of cells, and it can move its little arms and like do little somersaults. It's it's pretty neat. Well, super congratulations, Dell. Thank you. So uh, now, uh, for those of us, including myself, who are unaware, so twelve weeks, approximately. Uh, what are we looking at there? Four months. Uh, are we in the? Are we still in the the, the piglet phase, or what? W- what does it look like right now? It looks kind of like a gummy bear, I guess, but it has somewhat human features. It has appendages, and uh, they they did a three D scan, so you can make out like facial features and stuff. So I saw it a, has a, bone, a it bone, has okay. a brain, it has a stomach, has a heart. Um, so they can get heartbeat and all that fun stuff yeah, right now. Oh yeah, that's yeah, it's, awesome. It's wild. Now I, I saw an article a while back. They can actually three D print your baby <laughs> now. Have you seen this? 
Yeah. Yeah, they can do a 3D scan, and now we have all these maker bots and stuff, and they can actually print out your child so you can hold a little uh, uh, you know, polymer version of your child at four months. Del, please do it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck life into that one. I'm sure. <laughs> Um, well, that's so cool. Uh, I'll make sure not to tell Dharma because um, the the, oh. the the drumbeat <laughs> of of motherhood is yes the the famous clock is getting louder. So um, sooner than later, I've been told. <laughs> the fact that I'm we're both in grad school doesn't seem to deter her. Well, good for her. She knows what she wants. She does. She and does. if I can't think of a better incentive to finish grad school than that <laughs> as you well know i finished last year so yeah it's a good point well, that's cool what about you k dog nothing as exciting as that that's so awesome Del. that is exciting i'm really excited for you um i taught my last class at uh the professional fitness institute down here in vegas they're moving the school to kansas city and so i was a little heartbroken figured this job would be over. This is like a little part-time thing I do once a month, talking to personal trainers about uh, sports nutrition and their scope of practice. Uh But the school's director was out in town um, and sat in on my lecture and really liked it, so they might fly me out to Kansas City once a month, which would be really cool. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed. And I think think he really liked it, all because of this podcast, really. I think that staying up on the latest nutrition research on the weekends has helped improve the quality of my presentations. So... Thank you, listeners, for motivating me to continue to look into nutrition stuff every week. Super cool. Um, yeah, well, that's that's kind of one of the reasons why I, I wanted to do this podcast is because it helps us stay current on things that we would normally not look at just because we're our head. You know, people always assume, well, oh, you're into science, and so you must, like, look at all the stuff. It's like, no, you're often so buried in your job or for me getting the PhD that it's like I don't see a lot of this peripheral, really cool stuff people are doing. So, yeah. Good for us. We're a good team. <laughs> That's all around. It is, yes. I uh, Yesterday, spent the whole day, uh, we're on f- the final phases of putting our wedding invitations together, and it's funny how, like, we started out, we're like, you know, we're just sending emails, you know, we're, we're not going to be <laughs> slave to that traditional model of blah, blah, blah. Well, fast forward, like, six months, and, like, it's just become an ordeal, like, you know. Like cutting we, up lace doilies to put on every single invitation and we're like we're like half an inch from that far yes like we've got like the wax stamp on the back of the envelope there's other stamps and there's staples and there's foldy things well now 65 pound paper and go ahead that doesn't surprise me like there is something about you and dharma i know you better than i know dharma i guess but you guys go off a very like kind of organic not quite a hippie but just like a very like stable like couple but at the same time you're both very creative i know you're a photographer and dharma uh, i know can draw yeah so i guess i'm not i don't know that's like it's like your two sides are competing you got this really creative side but then this very like you know normal stable side yeah i think sounds like the creative side is winning out that is a very good point because like when you we started like putting it together and and you just get that itching kind of what you're saying which is like "Ah, we can do better than that (laughs) you know what i mean (laughs) and then and then you're it's like comedic because then you're like knee deep in paper and doilies as you said so anyways and also last night have you guys heard of spam a lot it's a play or something it is a play it's the money it's the money python thing right so like 
as far as I can tell, the world is divided largely into two groups of people. Those who love Monty Python and those who pretend they love Monty Python. <laughs> like, I'm not one of those. Like, you know, like, I, I just find it, I just don't like it. I don't know what to say. I love potty bad humor i love family guy i love all this stuff i just don't get it i'm just people are rolling on the ground laughing and i'm just that that curmudgeon in the corner who's like that was funny like can you understand them yeah well this have you ever was, watched the tv show not uh, the movies no i've i've caught bits little bits and pieces of both but maybe that's the problem See, my they might as well be speaking german or something i have such a hard time these weren't british people though to be fair Oh, you just the play. You just mean. the play, yeah. But I mean, like in my opinion, like I think the Monty Python thing is there's a seeding period. Like if you don't watch it for the first time, sometime between the ages of like nine and fourteen, very good chance you'll never appreciate it. Like there's tons of bad '80s movies I love and stuff with stupid kitschy humor, and trying to watch it as an adult, I'm just like. This isn't funny, guys. It's like it's like a really talented thirteen-year-old wrote a script to something, and it's got the same kind of potty humor. But I just don't, I don't, I just don't get it. I I, I want to so desperately because people love it. So I don't know. Now, in terms from a business standpoint, uh, I should, have, as the uh, resident business advisor to the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast, uh, you're you're our CFO. Yeah, uh-huh. the uh, I'm the chief BSer. I would say that uh, probably the majority of our listeners are probably into Monty Python because I think that level of nerdiness works very well with those it's, inclined to science and engineering. Believe so, me, I, I'm not. You I, might be disenfranchised. Like millions of people across the country might be deleting this podcast right now. If if your if your tenuous grasp of our listenership <laughs> is that that tenuous and in, 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 in light it, that that one comment can blow you away, I feel we've got bigger problems. But if you if you if you have an argument, if you want, I mean, I just I feel like I'm past the window. That's all I'm saying. I you know I understand I'm some uncouth Neanderthal who doesn't understand the subtleties and brilliance of the humor. I get that. I just don't think there's any coming back from the abyss I've entered. So I'm sorry, world. I'm I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Go enjoy your Monty Python. I'll be the guy in the corner with his arms folded, with listening to. I don't know another podcast because I just don't get it. So, well, I All enjoy right. hearing about the things that you're past the window for. <laughs> <laughs> Most things in life would fall into that bucket, I'm afraid. So, Ooh, do I hear a new segment? <laughs> what, what grinds my gears? <laughs> you know what grinds my gears? Spam up. All right, we have chatted for quite a time. Hopefully, we still have some some listeners. Well, I guess there's just one thing to do, people. Let's move on to science blast. Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a cheerleader pew. I know. I like that. I like it. It was definitely preloaded. <laughs> Recently, about half the time, you've I go science blast, and there's a there's a three Mississippi of silence before you're like, oh my gosh, I've got to do something. I've just but, accepted the shame now. Like I, it's a it, it's a warm blanket. Wrap it yes. around yourself and embrace it. <laughs> so, um. Are we, do- are we doing science blasts? How do we decide this is going to work? Del, do you have something to talk about? I do. All right, let's some blasts of science for Yay. you. So this is bad news. If you guys ever want to start on your path of criminal criminality, 
in Nature this week, they published a paper talking about efforts to build mug shots from DNA data. Have you guys heard about this? I have. Mm-hmm. I saw it. Uh, at least I saw a couple blurbs. Please tell. Yeah. So they what they've developed is a computer program that can very crudely predict your facial structure from your genetic material. And of course, I saw the headline, and my mind always immediately goes to like the science fiction application. And I'm like, wow, we're there. Like this is the future. Turns out, in the details, of course, it's. I mean, it's it's a start of it, but we're not quite to that point where they can take a hair sample from you and then on the computer screen enhance 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 and then there's scott's great big huge beard bearded face staring back at you so uh, these researchers out of uh, pennsylvania state university have developed a program like i said to make a 3d model of the face and their sample size what they did is they took 592 people and they created 3D models of their faces, and they used 7,000 data points across the face. And so these data points were tied to things like the distance between the eyes, the slope of the eyes, the curve of your lips, uh, the size of your nose, whether the nose is flat or pointed. So those are the types of things that they were looking at. And then on top of it, they judged or graded whether the faces were more masculine or more feminine. And so after they did this, so they had these 592 faces with this data, then they looked at every volunteer's genome, and they didn't look at the entire thing. They focused on genes that were uh, thought to be involved in facial development, and any that were involved with any facial abnormalities, such as cleft palate. And then they looked at the single nucleotide polymorphisms, the, the SNPs, and they deter- they were they think they've determined whether or not a facial feature was tied to one of those data points. And the results of their work is that they found 24 SNPs across 20 genes that were associated with facial uh, facial shape. And so then using that, they can make a predictive 3D model. And the example that they give is like if you imagine a face and kind of having like a heat map on it. So you have areas of the face that, um, so if you're looking at one SNP, you can show on a facial model, you know, whether it has zero effect or maximum effect. And so it's it's a spectrum then from, you know, zero to 100, if you will. And so then the facial reconstruction model sort of shows you both of those images, you know, if this gene had no effect and then if it had maximum effect. And there's been similar work out of China uh, where they had a sample size of a 1,000 people and we're looking at 30,000 data points but it's cool it's interesting it'll be something to look at but of course it's going to it's very difficult at this point so you guys are clear for the next few years at least to continue on your criminal ways <laughs> now well are there there the government's just backlogging all of our dna so probably not oh of course and the, the nsa is listening to us right now of course. i'm sure somebody's recording our conversation right now like, <laughs> I, I have a sneaking suspicion <laughs> our conversation is being recorded I feel like i'm being listened to <laughs> well you've never listened to one of the podcasts so for all you know you, this could be yeah. the greatest joke in the world on you <laughs> <laughs> the longest running p- prank ever. <laughs> I'm like, ah, I woke up early for a year. I got you. <laughs> so you're a computational uh, expert, and um, do you? So Me? Kinda, oh, no. sure. You're a programmer, and you're a well, son, and you're I'm a, not an expert. Uh, I I dabble in science and 
and programming. So, <laughs> and you have a PhD in that. As a result. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so uh, Mr. Amateur, uh, PhD amateur. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> do you think, like, knowing what you know about the genome and knowing what you know about programming and where all this is, is do you think that we will probably get to the point where there will at least be a, like, go 50 years in the future, there's a crime, uh, someone's killed, and they can take a bit of the DNA? Do you think that they'll, within an hour, they'll put a picture up on the screen saying early DNA evidence suggests it will look like this? I think we'll get a very, like, rough view the same way like they can currently now use uh, genetic material and with okay accuracy predict how tall they can be um but for some reason the face like the genetic information that we have regarding things like eye color and you know facial structure even hair we don't know and of course i mean it's extremely complicated right because the genetic code is only part of the equation we know that there's post-translational modifications that can be done to genes that and there's a lot of epigenetic influences. And then there's that as well. So I think it'll be amateur hour here, but my guess would be that, you know, we'd have like a very rough idea like, oh, this person's of, you know, European descent or of, you know, Asian descent. Well, we can do and that now. Yeah. Well, no, we don't We don't have that with the... Oh, the I thought we could. Group. Okay. I don't, I don't believe so. I thought the whole 23 mean stuff is they're like, you're 4% Irish. Oh, and- right. But not what you... You're right. Yes but not what you would look like. Oh, uh-huh, so, not right, right, right. Like your facial features are more European or, you know, more African or more Asian or whatever. Right. So did you see an example of what these pictures look like compared to the person that the DNA came from? No, I didn't see the actual. Oh, yeah, there was a couple up there. They were, it was, um, it's like if you kind of pixelated a face a bit and um, and then and then the colors were sm- like a watercolor version of a face, with mm-hmm. uh, with a bit pixelated, there was certainly some commonalities there, and I would say it was more similar than dissimilar. But as Dell is alluding to, there is there's far way to go, and I think probably part of the problem is, is that I forget what nuclei it is in the brain, but we have a whole section of our brain that is its sole purpose on the planet is to identify and recognize faces, right? So mm-hmm. our brain has spent a couple billion years getting really good at identifying faces. Um. Whereas you said uh, estimate height, we can do that. If someone's, if you say someone's going to be six one and they end up being six foot, you consider that a success with your gene, whatever. That's just an inch difference. But if a face is that same inch off, we're so good at picking that out because we can, we can basically, unless you're identical twins, and sometimes if you are identical twins, we can still identify those differences, which are just so minute it's ridiculous, you know. So that's adds to the problem here mm-hmm. yeah i don't know cool so uh carolina we're gonna we're gonna you're gonna you're gonna sit on your nugget till your segment yep i oh. will hatch that nugget later all right well what should we do now oh i have a science blast oh you got two because i told yeah. you to <laughs> there was so much confusion going into this oh no we continue our reign of professionalism delbert number two please Glorious leader. So, with summer right around the corner, while well, living in Reno, we're kind of okay for grilling right now. Have you gr- have you broken out the grill yet, Scott? I grill year round, baby. I'm no oh, amateur. Yeah. Dang what it, about- Belle. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Carolina? Or are you? Dang no, it no grill yet. I will be buying one oh. soon and 
Yeah, I'm very excited for that. Bought some patio furniture. You, you got you you're homeowners now. You you need to go to the Home Depot. You need to have mm-hmm. a pallet of bricks delivered. You need to do a built-in. Let's do this right. <laughs> Pour a yeah, little slab in awesome. the back. Come on. You're probably so, done. So, anyways, please don't. Please. Sorry. So, the point of bringing that up is because we especially Carolina, I'm sure, but we're aware of the cancer risk from grilling. If you get even a little bit of that black char, you get some polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons on your food. And these, this is, these are the substances that are found in things like oil and coal. And obviously, if you can just imagine eating a chunk of coal, it's probably going to affect your cancer risk. And so, mm-hmm. sure enough, that's a risk with grilling. And I'm sure, Scotty, you fight against that every week. Well, now, thanks to the results of a study published in the Journal of Agriculture and Food Chemistry, we can now conclusively say that marinating meat in beer before putting it on the barbecue can cut in half the cancer-causing chemicals. Is that because Ooh. it prevents char? I No, it ha- it actually, there's, I didn't pull the source, so it was a bad science blaster in that but uh, the study was uh, I read it from the the independent site and it sounds like it causes a chemical reaction in the meat and so by beating I guess by beating it to the punch by there must be some sort of reaction that occurs on the meat due to the beer and they tested this with um, lager non-alcoholic lager and black beer then when you actually cook it it reduces the levels they looked at eight types of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons uh and it reduced it by quite a bit huh. yeah and the, the this was actually my nutrition nugget too so i can oh. i guess add a little bit too <laughs> <laughs> wow that's pretty cool though that's like two it's like when you hear about like you're like two airplanes collided you're like the sky's so big how is that even possible <laughs> I thought that's what you meant when you were like, dang it, Dell." Yeah, because I, I just decided I was just going to sit on that nugget, but now it is prematurely hatched. It is. I, it is I guess we pulled the curtain back on the uh, level of yeah. collaboration that we do. <laughs> we have it's a preemie. Get it in the incubator, quick. Oxygen. Well, I was actually, I, I was even frustrated when I was when I was looking up information on this topic online, because I was so frustrated that Yahoo News picked up on this and all these other like mainstream news sites. I'm like, man, this is supposed to be like a secret, so that way we could just blow everybody's minds when we announce it <laughs> on the podcast. Well, I have but, some thoughts um, on this too, so I'll, I'll 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 keep them quiet until until we nuggetize this. Well, no, let's just let's just get it all out there right now. <laughs> all right, let's get it <laughs> out. So. All right, so 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 they they did say that the German dark lager marinade works the best at reducing the um, polycyclic aromatic compounds, and they said it has something to do with um, a lower antioxidant capacity of the darker beer. It basically gets absorbed better than the than the pilsner. The pilsner, the alcoholic pilsner, was actually the worst at reducing the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. Um, so they're saying they, that also, there's stuff in there's antioxidants in there that when you form these polycyclic aromatic rings that are cancer causing they will basically go and and reduce them chemically speaking so that they're no longer dangerous is that is that what you were picking up on yes yeah, so basically it sounds like it prevents the formation of uh-huh. them uh, because what, what i was reading in this um this article that uh harvard health put out about the topic, they were saying that at high temperatures, what happens is the amino acids react with creatine to form these um, cyclic compounds. 
thought to cause cancer in lab animals. It hasn't been shown decisively to cause cancer in humans, but it, you know, um, the European Union, I guess, really, really cautions against this. Um, and the, the, this Harvard Health letter suggested some other techniques you can use to um, make grilling a little bit safer. They suggested not, not only marinating your meats and things like beer and wine, um, but they also suggested cooking smaller pieces of meat because they cook a little bit faster and at a lower temperature. Mm-hmm. Um, you could also choose leaner cuts of meat to reduce like the amount of flare-up, flame, and smoke that occurs when the fat drips down onto the heat source. This um, is such a buzzkill. These are all the best things. <laughs> it's like- I know, I know. Well, this is this is the worst buzzkill of all. They suggested pre-cooking the meat you're going to grill in the microwave. No, no. That was so disgusting. Bad. Yeah. So, so <laughs> I guess some research indicates that that pre-cooking your your meat in the microwave for two minutes can reduce the amount of uh, the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons by up to 90%. Then put it in a blender, insert the feeding tube into your feeding hole in your stomach, and, you know, we don't even have to eat it now. This is great. Yeah, don't even bother tasting it. So we actually don't have studies, though, that show that these cause cancer in humans? No. Mm-mm. Well, just, isn't that just impossible to control? I mean, you can't you can't say, hey, study group A, we're going to give you nothing but burnt meat for a year, and we're going to see if you die. Like, well, I, you yeah, you know, the harder thing is that supposedly these PAWs, these polycyclic hydrocarbons, are composed 20% of the carbon in the universe. So, wow. you ca- like, how do you rule it out that it came from just your meat? Like, you know, it could have been anywhere. It's in the atmosphere. as a Right. Well, and it's not just, and, it's, and a lot of it is also the, the, the smoke that's coming up from the burning coals that's, you know, inserting other carcinogenic compounds. Oh, I'm all propane at my house. Ah, all propane. I'm propane for pure convenience. Like I used to be a, a, a super like like charcoal snob. Oh, you? No. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> I uh, was a charcoal snob, and then finally broke down, and we got the propane one. And the thing is, is that yes, I like charcoal better, but you end up using it like once every two months because it's such a pain. Right. And you, I propane barbecue, or as I should say, I in increase my cancer risk barbecue like every like like at least once or twice a week so um that's all that's good to know i remember go ahead you bring up a good point though about this study and i don't know if carolina you had a chance to look at it even more but that's a really good point that is it just marinate it must not just be marination because they use the different types of beer and so if their study was statistically relevant that would i guess answer that question that it's not just that it was marinated in something but that it was marinated with alcohol. Mm-hmm. They, sh- they should have marinated yeah. some with vodka. And I didn't that. look at other relevant studies, but it sounds like since at least 2007, it's been um, it's been known that marinating in alcohol does reduce the formation of these compounds. So this so this is at least like six years old. How the hell do we both pick the same story on a <laughs> Sunday morning? And I, well, you know, it's springtime. It's grilling season. It's a it's you know, a very good relevant yeah. story. We're giving the people I, what they I want. I applaud your taste in science. <laughs> and I applaud oh, yours, madam. No pun intended. Boom. <laughs> taste in science. Good one. I, uh, <laughs> I remember hearing about this when I way back in the yonder years. That's a word. Uh, when I got my first <laughs> undergraduate degree. Uh, I got my first degree way back in 2000. And um, the... I remember in organic chemistry class, I'm talking about the same thing way back. So this would have been like 97 when I took my first OCHEM class. And 
like as far as the chemistry, I mean, it kind of makes sense what you're saying. Based on what I remember, the, the, as you said, the, if you're not familiar with the chemistry, they form these polycyclic rings, which means you normally have a straight chain of hydrocarbon. It's just like three or four amino or three or four carbons long, and they just float around and they're everywhere. But when you apply the heat in the burn, in the burnt part, they form these rings that have a lot of strained high energy. The bonds are strained and, and they're not happy in that configuration. And the reason they're cancer causing is because they're highly reactive. And when they're floating around the body, they will, if they interact with cells, they will, they will very quickly have a, a strong chemical reaction. So I'm guessing... How is a ring more highly reactive than just a straight chain? Because, so, uh, carbon, it, it, um, uh, there are natural bond angles that the that the universe prefers and if you have a carbon carbon bond angle it wants to form these tetrahedron angles right so they have this nice little zigzaggy shape and that's where their lowest energy most happy if you gotcha. force them into a ring they're very unhappy high energy and any they're basically like you know one of those um if you've taken a paper clip and you do the the grasshopper paper clip thing where you bend it and then you and then you fold it over on itself, and if you drop it on the table, it explodes. Anyone? No. Nope. You, you've seen this. Carolina? I, I can kind of imagine what you're describing. You you're, take a paper clip. You're using good descriptive words. <laughs> you, you form it into like a triangle, and then you, you 3D, like you can kind of like bend the ends over each other, and then that metal strained, and then if you drop it I on the it, table, I get it, it yeah, releases and springs. like yeah, it doesn't like to be in that confirmation. It wants to pop into a more comfortable. Right, and that's all these carbons mm-hmm. are doing, and they're highly reactive. So I, what I'm guessing is is that you know, uh, these rings also have an oxygen in them, which 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 helps the case here because if you have high, um, if you have a lot of antioxidants in there, an antioxidant is just something that reduces it chemically reduces it. Um, so if you have an antioxidant that comes in contact with these, it is it is basically triggering the spring. It's not your cell triggering it and causing damage. The antioxidant triggers it, and now this becomes a more innocuous, less dangerous chemical. So that's what I think I'm guessing they're getting at, is that these antioxidants make those highly strained chemicals safe and unstrained before you ingest them. That that sounds like it would make sense. It is, and I, I'm probably completely wrong, but that's what, that's what I'm <laughs> But just, just so you guys know, it's not only grilling that can cause these... Uh, Compounds <gasps> form any kind of high heat cooking, like uh, frying what? and broiling. We, we, our ancestors have been charring meat for millennia, and they lived to be thirty-two. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, this goes in the same basket as me. As people are like, you understand that, um, you know, uh, if you completely cut out carbohydrates, um, your body <laughs> and, and and refined sugars. Oh my God, those are poison. You will live to be 112 years old. And my response is the same. I don't want to live to be 112 if I can't eat sugar or carbohydrates. I just don't care. I don't care how much more healthy it makes me. It's the same with barbecuing. If I can't have a little grilled, burnt, fatty meat from time to time because it's going to take six years off my life, I just don't care. I'm sorry. Life I is too I think you beautiful. should eat as much as you can, Scott. <laughs> Every day. Just get that char in there. <laughs> I, I, for some, I, I, it's not even subtly masked. You basically want me to get cancer and die. That's really what you just said. Appreciate that, buddy. <laughs> that was a very hey, nerdy I'm, way of telling someone, I wish you get cancer and die. I'm only chipper after 8 a.m. on a Sunday. <laughs> Prior to that, I'm, I'm a jerk. 
All right. Oh, I, I get it. And let me just throw in one more thing. Sure, um, There was a study that came out a few weeks ago that I, I didn't even want to do a science blast on because it was so upsetting to me to read the article. Um, it was it was in Cell. I believe it was published in the journal Cell. It was talking about um, research about high protein intake in middle-aged people and how um, having a protein intake greater than 20% of your daily calories is just as bad for... Uh, for cancer risk, uh, just as bad as just as bad for cancer risk as smoking cigarettes, and it's pretty heartbreaking to me because I always thought you know protein is just the best macronutrient, but yeah, but everything in moderation. You know, if you do too much of anything, too much burned meat, too much alcohol, too much whatever, you're gonna give yourself some kind of a problem. Now, is I don't know if you recall this from because it's from what you read, but. Yes. Are we talking burnt meat protein that gives no, you colon well, cancer? No, any, any kind of any kind of animal protein. We say that the effect is um, is not seen in plant protein consumption, right. uh, and only for for people. I believe it was ages fifty to sixty five ish. Once you're past that age, once you're over sixty five, it's actually beneficial to your health to have a higher protein intake. But in so that in that age range, they said that um, because it, because high protein intake uh, bumps up your growth hormone so high it can actually increase um the development of tumors in the body well this was like a four-part study which was really unusual because usually cell um would not be publishing that type of research but they did do some yeah. in vitro studies to go along with that you're damned Maybe if you I'll do lie. you're damned if you don't well the next, good next news nutrition is nugget i'll be sure to talk about that a little pour more. beer on your meat i mean that's that's uh, that's a good thing yeah, that, yeah that's an easy sell. I agree. <laughs> um, good times, good times. Well, that well. train has come to that stop. <laughs> now let's go to the next one, entitled "The Meat of the Sandwich." Scott, what do you have for us this week? Thank you, Dale. I don't know why you were speaking in staccato. I <laughs> because I wanted to give you as much time to get ready for your segment now. Like I need, like I needed an emotional preparation. Okay, I'm emotionally prepared. Um, so, internet, internet. I guess I wasn't. An international group of scientists have made an artificial chromosome. And believe me, it's actually cooler than you think, and I'm going to explain why here. So, a little background here. Um, Back in 2000, if you recall, we just talked about this recently, we sequenced the human genome. You know, it took a decade, it took billions of dollars, it took a lot of people. Um, And one of the people responsible for that, Craig uh, Venter, he uh, recently, I think it was just a couple years ago, he managed to so not just read the human genome. He took a bacterial genome and he completely copied it bit for bit, put it back into an empty bacteria with no DNA in it, and all of a sudden it started working dividing. So that was actually really cool, bit for bit copy. There were some small differences. They put their like initials in the DNA and they put like a sonnet or something in the DNA, but they really just made a bit for bit copy of that small bacterial genome and it started working. That's a huge leap too, but again, it's just making a copy. So um, 
So let's fast forward to now. And just this week, what came out was a, uh, uh, a paper called Total Synthesis of a Functional Designer Eukaryotic Chromosome in the Journal of Science, which I thought was a pretty sexy title for a paper. Normally, they're much drier, but they're talking about functional designer chromosomes. I thought that was nice. Um, first author in this paper was Anuluru, because I like to tell people that. But this was actually, and something they point out, was a huge collaboration. The paper's got like 40 t- names on it. Like it was a, cl- in, in, in a good way, it was a collaboration over many continents and people and undergraduates and, and PhDs. It was a huge collaboration, and they, they came and put together this paper. So, what was it? Oh, it was in science? It was in science, yeah. Total synthesis of a functional designer eukaryotic chromosome. So, uh, what does that mean? So, they took an entire yeast chromosome, uh, they made some really big changes to it. Then they put it back inside the cell. They kind of Frankensteined the chromosome, and um, they deleted most of the sequences that were considered non-essential. Uh, in the end, they made it 15% smaller than the original chromosome, and they found out that the synthetic version worked just fine. And as a matter of fact, it worked so fine uh, that it, they had to use some um, PCR and some other uh, uh, techniques just to identify which cells were, in fact, the the altered cells. So, so who cares, right? So I have a question. Yes, sir. Um, so when they inserted this chromosome, did they just find it in subsequent generations or did, did it actually, do they know what it effect it had on the, the yeast itself? Like, the altered chromosome? Ever, yeah. Was it uh, expressed somehow? Did, no phenotypic changes from what I read. Um, just, so, go ahead. So how do we know that if it never expressed anything from it? Well, because they, just... they, they did PCR and they, 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 they looked at the genome of the altered cells to confirm that it was being passed along. And they, they, all these changes they made were present in, in subsequent generations. But yet the yeast behaved just like a normal yeast. Hmm. And how, like how big was this chromosome? How many? I will get to all that, sir. I'm You're asking sorry. the right I... questions. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> I'm buckled in. Let's go for this ride. All right. So they use Baker's yeast, which uh, is called Saccharomyces uh, cerevisiae, and it's kind of a Latinized word for uh, sugar mold. And uh, what makes this really different from what Ventner did, besides the fact that they altered the chromosome quite a bit, is that this is a, a eukaryotic cell, uh, biology 101. Um, eukaryotic cells are what we're made out of. All mammals, all high-order organisms are made up of eukaryotes, which means that you basically take your entire genome. If you don't know, in a eukaryote and in humans, your genome is not just – people think of it as just like one giant 3 billion base pair long uh, a, a chunk of code, uh, and it's not. It's actually broken up into a whole bunch of chromosomes. And in a uh, back to, in humans, we have 46, 23 from mom, 23 from dad, and all those chromosomes come together to form kind of one complete version of your genome. So, and they float around separately. They're not one chain. In a bacteria, they have one giant circular chromosome. So that is more of that one big chain. So Ventner did a bunch of work in bacteria. Their systems are much simpler. He didn't change the genome at all. He just copied it, and then he put it back in. Huge feat. I'm not taking away from anything he did. It's brilliant. But in this case, we actually took a chromosome, made some changes, and put it back in. So working in a eukaryote versus a prokaryote um, is, 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 is much more challenging. So uh, yeast have 16 or 32 chromosomes, depending if they're haploid or diploid. We don't need to go into all that. But um, they were using a 16-chromosome version of this. Uh, of this. So, um, so did they take? one out and then put this one in yeah so this is what's cool they they uh they targeted chromosome three which to your question dell it has three hundred sixteen thousand bases 
Holy. Um, a lot of bases here. They engineered their replacement in, to be really different, like I said. So, you know, if I'm going to use like a, a, an analogy here, if we're going to make a meal, a chromosome is like a, a small uh, section. Of, it's like a big chapter in a book that tells you how to make that meal. Some parts of that chapter talk, uh, you know, let's say we're making meatloaf. So some are like, here's how you make the meatloaf. Other part of the chapter is how you, here's how you make the salad. Here's how you make the dessert. And in the end, that chromosome is kind of pushing together an entire meal and all the wonderful things. It's highly simplified, but but we'll look at it in that way. So, but they had no idea what this chromosome did. They we were just did like, know what they we well. So we know what it, they knew what the chromosome did, what it was responsible for. But the as, original one, but not the they didn't know how the synthetic would. Yes, all to be revealed in good oh. time, Delvin. Come on, man! <laughs> I, I applaud your enthusiasm. So, um, so with this meatloaf dinner analogy here, you know, as with some recipes some parts are much more important to the final product than others if you remove meat from a meatloaf you're basically in trouble and your meal falls apart it's the same with these chromosomes some part are critical to that cell survival uh, other not so much you know in the in the meatloaf dinner if you leave out the quarter teaspoon of tarragon it calls for you're probably going to be fine and the meal will taste just fine. The cell, the chromosome is no different. Some, there's a lot of tarragon in the chromosome that can easily be split out. The, the cell lives just fine. It may not do exactly the same thing, but for all intents and purposes, it's just, a, it's just fine. So that's what they did is they were, they went in search of the tarragon in their recipe. Um, and so what did they remove? This goes to your question, Dell. So they removed, um, they removed a whole bunch of repetitive DNA, little chains that repeat themselves called transposons that we don't know exactly what they do, but they, you can live without them. Uh, they also got rid of introns, which are little bits of DNA that, that, um, that actually are the, – the, the cell actually splices out this segment of the DNA before it makes protein. It's like the um, buffer, right? It's, it's – Like a read buffer? I wouldn't call it that personally uh, because your introns will span your actual entire segment and some are left in for um, if you want to have a, a, a variance um, uh, what do you call those um, splice variants and whatnot but they're they can serve functions but you can they, they are generally cut out so we'll call that a, a, a an internal buffer if we will use your words those were uh, those were chopped out Um they actually even spliced out the tRNA genes, which are, are responsible for actually taking the amino acids and helping make the actual proteins. They actually removed those, and it works. So, um, they what? What? well then other genes can make tRNA, tRNAs no. too. So the, the, this is spread across the entire genome, all the things. So so they were able to remove the tRNA, tRNA genes in this particular chromosome, and it still survived. Uh, so I don't which, get it. I, I mean. I don't get it though. Like, if you went in there and just like scrambled this whole thing up, right? Like, how do you still end up with an organism? Like, well, yeah, I know it's fascinating, right? And in in the end, they re, they removed two hundred in uh, oh, they shrunk it to two hundred seventy two thousand bases. So they they removed I don't know what is that about one hundred fifty thousand bases, dropped its weight by fifteen percent, and they put it back in. So kind of to your question, Dale, it's like, well, how you just take all this out and it survives? How do they know? They, yeah. they did what – this is what's really cool about this. So they inserted 
these really short DNA segments in all the areas they were questioning. They, they, so they put the genome up on their computer and they say, this looks like it's going to make a tRNA. This looks like it's an intron. All these sort of things. Sure. And they put these LOXP sites in. Without getting into the crazy details of this, they inserted these little segments of gene or little segments in the genome uh, or in this chromosome they're looking at. And they're, they can very specifically put a chemical into there, into the cell, and it will turn on or off that gene or that segment they want to look at from being converted from DNA into RNA. And, and there are little light switches on or off to say, you can uh, turn this bit into RNA, you can turn this bit, and they can individually turn those on and off. And they ended up putting 5,000 LOXP sites into this entire chromosome. And they just started testing. They're like, well, let's turn off this one. Let's turn off this segment. And they were slowly able to piece together, ah, if we turn off this switch here for this small segment of a gene, the cell dies. Let's leave that one in. If we remove this this segment of 800 transposons, hey, look, the cell's living. And over years, they were able to piece together what part of that chromosome they could turn on and off. And they just started building an ultimate chromosome with all the segments they turned off where the cell still lived. And that's 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 what they did in a, in a nutshell. And, and the science behind it is they took these short pieces of DNA that they determined were essential and they combined them into these building blocks that were 750 base pairs each. So these little Legos each had 750 base pairs. They stuffed them into a bacterial plasmid, um, combined them, inserted that adjusted little block that they decided was important into the actual host uh, chromosome, the, 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 uh, the unmolested yeast chromosome, put that in, everything worked. Then they took that one, and then they made another small change on top of that, another. So they basically, over time, slowly converted a full yeast chromosome into this Frankenstein version, one step at a time. And in the end, uh, they all these mini chunks formed a brand new chromosome with all the with all the non-essential pieces carved out of it. I mean, it's pretty phenomenal, actually. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, I mean, I'm just blown away it's it's pretty amazing i i but I, what i really want to know is did they make any beer with this yeast <laughs> they, <laughs> uh, some prison hooch with the with the bread yeast <laughs> yeah. um i as far as i know they didn't um one last thing they did which which i thought was one of the most underreported but cool aspects of it is that so at, at the end of a um when you're when you've got this big chromosome and if you need to make a protein from the chromosome you first need to make it into RNA and so what happens is you uh, you have this piece of protein that attaches to your uh, to the DNA and it reads the whole segment of the gene that it wants to make into a protein at the end of that there's something called a stop codon and um, this basically says stop reading here this is the end of what the DNA code is for a protein and go ahead and make just this 800 base pair chunk into a protein. There's a stop codon at the end. There are different ways you can write a stop codon. Uh, they turned all of the TAA switches into TAGs. And if you understand the biology of that, it, both those say stop writing here, but the TAG is just a different way of saying it and it gets the job done. What they proposed they could do is they could because all the stop codons were TAG, they could actually, in the future, make artificial tRNAs 
that were only specific to the synthetic uh, um, amino acids they wanted to make, specific to TAG only. So you could, in essence, alter the DNA so that it would only use these very specific um, uh, designer amino acids based on based on 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 the the, the changes to the codone. Um, which means that you could you could control the cell very nicely if you don't want it to get in the wild. You could make a synthetic amino acid that the cell needs to survive, and it will only be transcribed in the cell. So you can control it. There's there's just a lot of really cool ways you could go with this, and uh, I didn't do a great job explaining it, but it's uh it's it's that's not true, Aww. Scotty. You did super. <laughs> so, so why do people care about this? If you're listening and you're not into molecular biology, why would you care? Um, well, it's you know it's not really what they did here. It's what it's what we're kind of leaning towards with this. You know, we are slowly reaching the point where we can write our own you know cookbook rather than just copy the cookbook. Um, and up and you know up until now we've basically been doing three things right um, think of if you think of your DNA as a cookbook with these thousands of recipes you know one thing we've done is if you think of like gene therapy which we talk about all the time you're gonna fix a protein that gives you Alzheimer's so all we've done is gone to your your recipe and your book is messed up one little bit of your recipe and it's causing you to have Alzheimer's so we just take a photocopy out of someone else's book recipe that isn't messed up they didn't pour coffee on it and, and you can read that part of the recipe and then we copy that in the co- photocopier put that back into your copy into your book and that's fine so that's a very small change we're making it's very important it can do a lot of good things but we're just making a very small correction to um to your genome uh, we also do like fusion cuisine you know think of like chinese cuban fusion so now we can take like a gene from a squid and we can shove it into a mouse, and now that mouse glows, you know, so we can do this fusion stuff where we're taking genes that didn't previously exist in one organism, put it together. So now, in the end, researchers are able to take an entire chapter from this cookbook, rewrite it from scratch, basically, and and, reins- and, and then reinsert it back to the organism, and now it's growing. So what this does is it opens up the door for us to make our entire own cookbook from scratch you know the readers digest condensed condensed version of this 16 chromosome yeast you know has been rewritten from scratch and now maybe that's going to lead to something we can do you know and i was thinking what can this actually like how could we use this in the future i was thinking like you know maybe we just not fix our dna but we could add whole new custom chromosomes to your body you know it'd be like you know like adding a sail to your car or putting an extra wing on an airplane like we t- we leave the base component <laughs> of your genome alone but we're just we're just bolting on something else right um i thought that was pretty cool you know what i mean like you know we could we in why does that guy have a third arm well right? you never know you never know right <laughs> Come when, in handy you know he's a sword fighter you make him in handy um so we what i think is really nice about it is that it's so hard to make little changes to your genome without it having massive downstream consequences. If you wanted to add a complete extra gene, that may have may really screw stuff up and ultimately be lethal or have unknown consequences. If we were just to put a complete synthetic chromosome in you, your whole body's working like it was, but now it just has this extra chromosome and it's not it's not getting yeah, but screwed this, up. This research almost says the opposite. It's like, hey, we're just gonna stir this crap up, but these 
you know, they just keep puttering on. That's why I'm so surprised that they're able to track this through subsequent generations and actually see that their changes were still in there because it seems to have no effect on the organism. Well, while a yeast is eukaryotic, it is hardly a higher order organism, you know what I mean? And introns and transposons and all these things, when you have something um, as relatively more complex as like a mammal, <clears throat> they may have much greater consequences to remove them. You know, the, your, this GNA modification, this, this, these transposons and these introns, these are just a genetic lottery that's happened over billions of years. So there, it makes sense that there's going to be some parts that are more important than others and some parts that may not matter at all. But the higher order organisms have spent a lot of time like, like using those to their advantage. So I think we will we'll run into a lot more people or issues when we start moving into, we'll say, mice, if you want to start, you know, removing all those junk, quote-unquote, junk bits of, uh, of DNA, we probably will run into issues. I mean, we're not going to have ALF anytime soon. Love that show. But this really does lay the groundwork for a complete synthetic life. We're not taking a gene from a bacteria. And Why don't you just throw out, like, a Mayberry TV reference or, like, Flipper? Like, Flipper? Al When's yeah. the last time ALF was on TV? 1982? Uh, probably it was, it might've been my favorite show as a childhood. So you're walking on very thin ice. You're doing to me what I did to all of our, our fans of spam a lot. All right. So, uh, you can like take it. it. I can't take it. Well, good stuff, Scott. I, yeah. I, I enjoyed that. So, you know, that's that. They, it was really cool stuff. I think probably the coolest thing about it is that it was almost all the, half this work was done by undergraduates, like just like putting together. They actually had a class called like build a chromosome or something like build a the genome. New, the new science model. It is. Undergrads to do your research. But the fact that we can actually make it simple enough for undergraduates to, to do the grunt work tells you how far we've gone. You know, it took Ventner $40 million in 15 years to do the, the, the bacterial genome with, a, with 250 PhDs working for him. Now we largely have, uh, now we largely have this um, uh, undergraduates doing it. So it's super cool. But that's it. And um, Very nice. It's good times. Good times. Very cool. Well, I guess we'll uh, fifty-three minutes. I think we'll. I think we'll finish up here. That's well done. I'm losing my caffeine so boost too. I feel myself getting tired. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, uh. <clears throat> Dell, can you please take us home? I'm. I'm. It's been two weeks since you've done your your magic, and I want to hear it. I really hope you enjoyed listening to All Your Chromosomes Belong to Us on this early Sunday morning. We learned Scott hates Monty Python. Finding your mug from stuff you left on your mug. Dell stole Carolina's thunder by beating her to the punch and sharing the wondrous effects of beer on your meat. We learned why yeast really, really hate us. We just won't leave them alone and continue to tinker with their genes by inserting an artificial chromosome. Tune in next week to find more fascinating science tidbits and what else grinds Scott's gears. Will it be kids playing loud music? Kids wearing their pants too low? Who knows? Tune in and find out. God, that's the greatest that's the greatest one minute in the show ever period find that's out what your mug for. looks like by what was on your mug oh my god Del, you've got a talent we're gonna milk it we've been underutilizing you for so long we you we've we've been limiting you to pews and it, it's like we're using a formula one race car to take granny to the grocery store on the weekends oh Rock on. Say bye, kids.
Bye. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye.